want to learn how to manage your own investments? Are you ready to stop paying investment management fees and start building wealth? The DIY Investing Podcast is dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, and resources you need to be a better investor. Learn how to make investments through the use of fundamental analysis, mental models, and business management insights. Now, here's your host, value investing expert, Trey Henninger. Hello and welcome to the DIY Investing Podcast. My name is Trey Henniger and I'm your host. Today we have a special guest for the podcast, Value Stock Geek. He is a returning guest on the show who aired in episodes 49 and 62, where we discussed his investing process, seeking cheap and good balance sheet type businesses, and also his passive asset allocation strategy. Today, we want to go into some additional information on his strategy and how he is adapting to the coronavirus and how that has impacted his investing portfolio. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So what I want to begin with is if you can kind of just give a little bit of an overview of what you were thinking as the coronavirus hit and as the market started to develop. So like where were you at in terms of your portfolio allocation? You know, were you holding cash? How many stocks did you have? And kind of give us some background on for those who haven't listened to our previous interview. Um, kind of just where you stood and just the thought process you had going into this scare that we had in March as the market dropped, you know, 30% in a few weeks. Yeah, sure. So I started out my blog in 2016. Um, and the idea was that I set aside some of my money to basically apply a deep value investing strategy. Um, it was based on Ben Graham's idea that he outlined in the 70s where it was basically an approach to quantitative value investing where you buy stocks with low PEs and low debt to equity ratios and you basically hold stocks for either two years or 50%, whichever comes first. Uh, you have very little regard to the actual business quality of the company. You're looking for quality more in terms of the balance sheet. Um, and you flip that very quickly as the multiple improves, you sell and get out. Um, and then you give the idea a year or two to work out. Um, my plan all along was I eventually thought that there would be some type of market crash where I'd be able to switch to Ben Graham's other strategy, which is the classic net-net approach. And I was waiting for that crash to happen. Uh, and in the meantime, working with these low PE, low debt to equity companies, Around the middle of 2019, I saw the yield curve invert. That's predicted every recession, every crash for the last 60 years. I assumed that we were headed for another one of those situations. I looked at things like market cap to GDP, and I saw that those were near internet bubble highs. So my assumption was we were going to have a recession. We were going to have a 50% decline. That was going to give me my opportunity to buy a bunch of net nets. And then I would move on from there. Um, then the coronavirus hit and the entire American economy was shut down. And I found myself holding a lot of terrible businesses. 
Uh, it wasn't too much fun to own a bunch of struggling retailers and steel companies and things like that when it looked like the entire global economy was grinding to a halt. So I sold a lot of those. I went into the crash about, fortunately, I was about 50% cash. Um, I think in the depths of the crash, I had a basically a 20, 25% drawdown. It was a pretty good decision to sell a lot of those stocks. Um, if I didn't do that, I probably would have had, by my calculations, about a 60% drawdown. Um, but at the same time, because I had bought into this whole macro thesis, I assumed that the 50% drawdown I was anticipating was going to be a lot worse than 50%. And uh, I sat it out and I ignored a lot of the good value that was in the market um, in March. And that turned out to be a mistake. Uh, the economy has improved. Stimulus kicked in. Um, a lot of the perma bearers will say that it's a fake recovery. But I think if you look at, for instance, the unemployment statistics, we've gone from a peak of about a 14% unemployment rate to about an 8% unemployment rate. That's pretty much what you saw in four years after the financial crisis. We've done in four months what took four years last time. So I think that the recovery is real and I was wrong. And it, uh, the whole experience kind of made me think about, rethink my approach to investing and uh, whether or not I should put so much stock into these big macro themes and ideas. Well, I think that's a really interesting, I mean, what I've been, what I've been really proud of in watching you over the last six months is recognizing how you've made mistakes and learning from them. And I think mm -hmm. that's the, the most useful for other investors to learn from is that when you see something and you're making decisions, experiencing drawdowns in real time is very different than looking backwards at past drawdowns you know it's really easy to look back and say oh i would have done this in 2008 2009 or i would have done this during the 2000 bubble versus when you're in the middle of it those fears are very real and you and i talked very private you know talked privately throughout march april and may about the decline and about how the economy was doing and both of us i think thought you know we could be going into depression and all sorts of stuff like that so i think um it's been very admirable how you've talked through publicly about how you've made adaptations because of that. Cause I think, you know, like you said, we're both somewhat wrong. I mean, you know, the economy is doing a lot better. So do you think it was more, do you think the mistake was paying attention to the economy at all? Or was it because of the type of stocks in your portfolio that you needed to pay attention to the economy? Or where do you think, the adaptation really needed to be because we were certainly wrong on how the economy might have gone about. I mean, I think there was potentially a risk we would have ended up in worse than we did, but um, where do you think that underlying root cause was? Um, I think it was a little bit of both. So I think that if you own a bunch of cyclical, no moat kind of bad businesses, you need to pay attention to the macro economy. Um, you want to buy those kind of businesses at the uh, lows. You want to buy them at at March 2009. Uh, you don't want to be in a situation where you own a lot of those companies in uh, late 2007. Um, if you look at like a pure kind of 
value, like you're just looking for statistical cheapness with no regard to quality. Um, if you look at that kind of portfolio in a year like 2008, you could potentially have 50, 70 percent drawdowns. Um, it, it's a very scary thing to hold. At the same time, it's kind of the best place to be when you're in early 2009. And there's a lot of businesses that people have left for dead. And the truth is that the economy is about to come back to life. Um, so moving on to the second point, can you predict those kind of things? Um, if you're investing in those kind of cyclical businesses, there's you know two approaches. You could either just be consistent with it, do it consistently all the time, or you could try to predict the cycle. Um, I don't think you can predict the cycle. I used to think you could. I used to think that there were clear signs ahead of time, like a yield curve inversion, like uh, macro numbers for the S&P 500. Um, you could look at things like private debt to GDP, and you could recognize peaks in the economic cycle. But uh, after getting March so wrong, I really question the ability of people, including myself, to do that. Um, I think that when you get too much macro in your brain, it can lead to some bad investment outcomes. Um, and the reality is there's not many macro guys who are very successful. There's two that I can think of off the top of my head, George Soros and Stanley Druckenmiller. Um, the question is like, are you George Soros or Stanley Druckenmiller? And I think the answer is no, it's definitely no for me. Um, I recently reread um, Tobias Carlyle's book, Concentrated Investing. And there's a chapter in there about John Maynard Keynes, who's the best macroeconomist of all time. He basically wrote the book on macroeconomics and he gave up on macro as an investing strategy. So um, I think it's really hard to do that. So while I sat on all of this cash, um, it really made me just rethink my whole investing process where um, maybe it's not such a hot idea to hold on to these cyclical companies that are so dependent upon the economic cycle. Uh, maybe it's a better idea to just buy a good company with a moat and uh, high, you know, high returns on capital, um, a competitive advantage, strong track record, where you can be confident that if there is a recession next year, it's going to be okay. And you can kind of take a more buy and hold business owner approach. Um, I also took a look back at my blog. I reread a lot of my blog. I looked at a lot of what I was doing. And it's obvious that I made a number of mistakes that I wasn't analyzing business quality deep enough. And I thought a new kind of approach was necessary, an approach where I would be able, I would hold companies that I could hold with confidence through an event like March, um, the kind of company where it's not going to be killed if unemployment goes up to 15%. Um, it's the kind of company that you would actually be willing to hold for 10 years if the stock market were closed. And that's not really what you're doing when you're doing more of the deep value kind of trading strategy where you're trying to buy things, depress multiples and sell them as soon as they go up because you know that over the long run, it's not really going to turn into an excellent business. You're just trying to take advantage of a market mispricing. So... It's interesting because that idea of taking advantage of a market mispricing 
is kind of one of the central tenets of value investing, right? We're trying to take advantage of these apparent inefficiencies in the market, but it sounds like in some ways you're you've identified that sometimes when you do that, you have the potential to buy some value traps. Is that an accurate way of of um, defining what you're trying to say? Um, what I'm what I'm trying to say more is I'm still looking for a margin of safety. I'm still looking for mispricings, but I'm going to have more of a mind towards actual business quality where I'm not simply going to buy something just because it's statistically cheap. I'm going to have more of an emphasis on is this a durable business? Is this worth holding for the long run? And be more of a long-term kind of investor. Um, I still think it's consistent with value investing. I, I'm still looking for market mispricings. But I'm looking for something that could grow more over the long run. And I'm looking for something that's better to hold. Now, with, with that said, I still think that statistical deep value approach works. Um, but I think I ever post about this the other day. I, looking back on it, I think a better way to implement it is to simply do it through um, an ETF like VBR or QVAL or Tobias Carlyle Zig ETF rather than trying to do it yourself. Because at the end of the day, if you are buying a large statistically cheap portfolio, your returns are pretty much going to be correlated with those larger um those larger ETFs that are tracking quant value and small cap value. And it's probably easier to just hold one of those, put it away for 20 years, um, than it is to do it the way I was doing it, where you have this kind of hyperactive trading approach and you're trying to get in and out of these things as quickly as possible. It's probably best to just let the quants who wrote the book on it do that work um, rather than trying to do it yourself. At least that's the conclusion I came to. That makes sense. And and for any listeners who want to learn more about Tobias Carlyle, that was episode 52 where I interviewed him uh, about his book, uh, The Acquirer's Multiple, which talks about the strategy he uses in that Zig ETF. Um, so I think the, the article that really drove me to want to interview you today was the one where you posted and said, mistakes have been made and lessons have been learned. And I think what was so great about that is that you really captured the crux of the weaknesses in your investing process and then tried to make changes, which is what I like to preach on the show that you you need to focus on these process changes. And you had four key areas that you mentioned and, and I want to share them with the, the audience here. And I, and I want you to think about does one of these, you know, is one or two of these more important than the others or is it just they were all individual weaknesses? So you talked about, number one, you can't predict macro. Number two, you weren't thinking like a business owner. Your risk tolerance is lower than you thought and pounding predictions of doom into your head wasn't productive. So does one of those stand out more than the others or was it just trying to identify all the weaknesses that you saw in your pre prior process? I think that they're all relevant. I think that they're all important. Um, I do think I, I proved to myself that I can't really, really predict macro. And a lot of that is I did pound a lot of macro into my brain for four years. And I think it was uh, destructive to my investment process. Where I think like macroeconomics, especially when you're getting into like, the perma bear kind of macro that I was getting into, um, 
it's something where it generates a lot of clicks and ratings. It's done by people who are trying to sell books. It's done by people who are trying to sell something. Uh, but if you look at their actual investment performance, it doesn't really add up to anything. There are very few people that can actually predict macro. It was probably a little crazy to think that I could do it. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that that's a pretty critical aspect of the process. Uh, in terms of thinking as a business owner, I did a lot of trading. Um, I outperformed my screens. I outperformed, for instance, VBR. Um, but I didn't outperform it by picking good stocks. I outperformed it because I was doing good trading. I was getting out when the multiple reached a decent level. I was cutting my losses quickly. I was able to quickly identify when something was about to fall apart and get out in time. Um, but when I went back and I really thought about it and I reread a lot of those posts, I asked myself, is that really investing? Is that really... Um, even if I'm using like kind of a valuation framework, is it really investing to just kind of quickly try to get in and out of companies as their multiples change? I don't really think it is. Like it really brought me back to what Warren Buffett was talking about. Like when you buy a stock, you're buying a business and you should consider it an ownership share of a business. And if you're not willing to hold it, you probably shouldn't buy it at all. And I just kind of came back to that. I reread a lot of the Buffett letters. I read some Hagstrom. Um, and I, I was I, I just thought about it in a, in a different way. And I looked at my past activity and I realized that I probably wasn't approaching this in, in the right way. Well, and, and on that piece, you, you really had, didn't you study each of those types of investments and say, hey, you know, I made 30% on this stock, but six months later, it was down 80% on some of those or something like that? Yeah, absolutely. Because when I bought them, I knew that they were bad businesses. I knew that um, they weren't really good businesses to hold for the long run. So knowing that it's a bad business made it essential to kind of cut my losses as soon as they started to fall apart. It also made it essential to sell as soon as they had their little pop. Um, but like I said, that's not really investing. That's trading. And uh, I think that's something I want to move away from. Yeah, that makes sense. I think your piece that you talk about here about pounding predictions of doom into your head or, you know, really the predicting macro is key. I know myself, I used to listen to a podcast, which probably a lot of our listeners may have heard of or know, called Macro Voices. And I really enjoyed the podcast. It's really interesting, entertaining. But I found that the more I listened to it, the more I wanted to make changes to my portfolio that didn't make sense or were along the lines of what you said is trading or speculating instead of investing. Um, and, and, you know, so I cut out those type of podcasts. I cut out, you know, CNBC and at least for me, it's helped improve um, my process, whether it's a two, I, I think it's also improving my returns, but I think the re real important part is it's improving my process, which will eventually reach those returns. So have you cut out, a lot of those sources of, of doom from your process? Yeah, I, I have. I stopped listening to a lot of those podcasts. I stopped reading a lot of them. I stopped following a lot of those people on Twitter. Um, and it really does get into your head. It really does corrupt your investing process. And the reality is that none of them know. None of them know what's going to happen tomorrow. None of them know what's going to happen next year. They all have their predictions. They all sound extremely confident in those predictions. 
but it's all nonsense and it's not really it's not really conducive to an investing process if you want to be like a macro speculator that's one thing but uh like i said the people who have gotten rich off of macro speculation they're not very numerous um and i think it's generally bad for an investing process i think it was bad for my investing process yeah, I think for me, um, a key word that I've I've learned to avoid if someone says it is like contango, where they're talking about like oil and and the way that things are going in the futures, and I'm just like, man, I'm never gonna buy futures. I need to avoid anyone talking about this because it's not gonna help. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, it's interesting, you know, like man, that's it's, but it's I realize it's kind of like junk food. You you eat it, tastes good. And then you feel bad later. Um, so I don't know. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I think I found interesting, perhaps as confirmation bias, because it, it tends to align with my philosophy, is you said, you know, okay, so I made some mistakes. I, I was buying cheap businesses and they were all they tended to be junk. Um, but I still want to buy cheap businesses and I want them to be high quality at the same time. And And I think when you talk to people... It, let's call it on Twitter or whatever, the average person tends to assume that it's an either or. Um, but you went back and studied and figured out that it, it's not an either or. You can buy high quality businesses at cheap prices and that can lead to high returns. So perhaps you can share some of your thoughts in your research on, you know, you had this article on margin of safety still matters. And I thought that was really interesting Um it's what I try to do, but I think it, it, it's an interesting topic to explore. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it it's something where I, um, when I was reevaluating my whole investing process, I went back and I looked at a lot of different things, and I always kind of um, discounted the idea that you could really find adorable competitive advantage in a business. Um, and I went ahead and I looked at. A lot of different firms, um, and I, I thought that it was very difficult to find those businesses that could resist mean reversion. And I thought it was really hard to to, sh- to find um, a good company at a wonderful a wonderful company at a wonderful price. So I went back and I looked at a lot of the best performers of the last decade, um, and I saw. And I tried to look at their history evaluation multiples, and I found that a lot of them did sell for compelling multiples. And it was pretty obvious that they were good businesses. I do think it's possible to find a good business. I do think it's possible for an investor to analyze and conclude that something is a good business. I think it's pretty obvious that something like a Colgate or a MasterCard is probably a better business than tire companies and video game retailers, which is the kind of thing that I that I was investing in. Um, I went back and I read a lot of old um, Value Investors Club's articles to see which um, kind of pitches worked out, which ideas worked out. And I concluded that, yeah, there are great opportunities to buy great businesses at good prices. Um, a great example of that is Apple. Apple was available at a 10 PE in both 2013 and 2016. Uh, I saw MasterCard that was available at a uh, you know sub 10x EV EBIT multiple back in uh, back in 2010 when there were some concerns about regulation around uh, swiping and payments. Um, I also went back and I saw that uh, there were defense companies, for instance, trading at low EV EBIT multiples 
back in the early 2010s. And when I looked through a lot of really great companies, great performers over the long run, I saw that for all of them, there was usually some period of time when it was undervalued, when they were going through some kind of temporary problem or temporary concern, and there was an opportunity to buy a great company at a wonderful price. Um, I also look back at Warren Buffett's track record, a lot of the companies that he's bought in the past, and he rarely overpaid. Like the the quote that everybody always focuses on is, oh, uh, it's better to buy a wonderful company at a fair price than a fair company at a wonderful price. But I found when I looked back on his track record, all of his investments were bought at a wonderful price. He bought wonderful companies at wonderful prices. He bought Seas Candy at a 5x multiple. He bought Coke at a 10x multiple. Um, he bought, you know, Geico below tangible book. Like it is possible these things do come along. Um, but the thing I really went and walked away with it was that it doesn't happen enough where you could meet the traditional standards of diversification, where you're going to own 30 stocks in a single portfolio. They are kind of rare events. And um, that's why I was thinking that these days I want to veer more towards concentration and wait more towards the fat pitch, wait less for trying to fill up a portfolio full of 20, 30 stocks and focus more on owning a more focused portfolio of good companies with a, a big margin of safety. I think it's important um, what you're saying there on that these companies that everyone considers today to be high quality, like MasterCard and Apple, traded at reasonable, but not just reasonable, but cheap multiples, um, like 10x PEs recently. Because a lot of people says even if they, you know, you talk about Warren Buffett buying everything at a wonderful price, they're like, oh, well, that was 30 years ago or 50 years ago. So it was different. But when you're talking 2013, 2016, that's recent. You know, that's a lot of people that's in their investing lifetime. Um, and, and I think Apple's a good example because I bought Apple in 2013 and in 2016. Um, Excellent. At those low prices. Now, you could tell I also sold Apple um, before 2020. So, you know, take it for what it is. I might be good at buying and bad at selling, but um, it, it's not simply a hindsight bias. You can recognize those examples during the time. Um, and, and, and Apple was one that was obvious to me at those times. Now, I didn't buy MasterCard or Domino's like I would have liked based upon what your your discussion of it, but um but concentration is important like like you said which brings me to the point that I want to explore next is you know historically you've not been as concentrated right um you're i think you're in the range of 20 to 30 stocks is that what you used to used to run yeah i, I used to try to own uh 30 stocks that was always my goal was to own 30 usually i own somewhere like 20 25 uh, based on what I could find, but I really just would try to fill up a whole portfolio full of companies because that's what the research says you're supposed to do. And I was very much rooted in that kind of quantitative framework where I was trying to fill up a portfolio with as many companies as possible. But uh, I, I think it was it was the wrong approach. I think it led to not thinking deeply enough about the businesses that I own. Um, a lot of times my thinking was, well, it's a 3% position. Uh, I think the multiple could easily re-rate up by 50%, might as well go for it. And I mean, I think looking back on it, might as well isn't good enough. Like if you're <laughs> going to invest in a company, you should have, you should feel more strongly about it 
then it's good enough. I'll get 50, 100% off of it. Like, I think I'm only interested in buying positions where I have, I can have much more conviction than that. Um, or also sell at the first sign of trouble, which is kind of what happened. Yeah, I think that's the the important piece, right? So as you increase the quality of your portfolio, you can increase conviction. Um, which brings me to where I want, you know, the next article I'd really thought was uh, a key takeaway was you talked about why quality is essential for a concentrated portfolio. So it's not just that you are shifting to quality in less positions. It sounds like the two have to go together. Is Is that how you describe it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, when you look at concentrated investors, when you look at investors who really focused on um, you know, 10 positions or uh, le- even less than that, they're not owning, they're not owning h- high probability um, or they're not owning positions where there's a high probability of different kinds of outcomes. Like they're more sure things. They're more high quality companies. Like when you look at when Munger holds a concentrated portfolio, he's not buying some company that's below tangible book and you think it's going to re-rate next year because the business cycle will change. Like he's not buying positions like that. He's buying positions where you can make a very plausible case that it's an extremely high quality business. It'll be able to survive whatever the economy throws at it. And uh, it'll be a long-term performer. And I think if you're going to run a portfolio where you're only owning like 10, 15 positions, that it needs to be of that level of quality. It needs to be the kind of firm where if the stock market were closed for 10 years, you wouldn't be freaked out if you were forced to hold it. And those are the kind of things that I'm looking for. And and if you're going to run a concentrated 10, 15 stock portfolio or even less than that, I think it needs to be that level of business quality to hold it in that kind of concentration. Yeah, because I think if you were to talk to or just to try and explain this to the, you know, let's talk this generic average person who understands simply the mainstream thought on investing is, you know, you talk about how your risk tolerance was lower than you thought going into this recession or stock market crash, whatever you want to call it, the average person would say, or, you know, the average, let's say financial advisor say, okay, well, what you needed to do was you need to diversify more. And so you're going in the opposite direction, which um, I think is fine, but I think it requires some understanding of why that is, because the person might say, okay, well, you had 30 stocks and you were uncomfortable. Well, maybe you should have 50 stocks or a hundred stocks. So why is that mainstream view either wrong or simply not as valuable for you. So like what's the difference between the change you're choosing to make and why you think that's better than taking what the mainstream would say, which is you should have diversified more. Well, I I do own a diversified portfolio that's in different asset allocations that's separate from this account where I'm trying to pick stocks. So I think diversification in terms of asset classes can help there, can help reduce drawdowns, that type of thing. Uh, But when you're talking about buying individual stocks, the reality is that if you're going to buy 30 stocks, you should probably just buy an ETF. Like there's an ETF that will be able to recreate those factors, recreate those strategies. If you're buying individual stocks, um, you should be doing some level of a higher level of analysis on them than simply the 
you know, the, the quantitative metrics and thinking more deeply about the long-term prospects of the business. And when you look at the actual research, it shows that sharp ratios and that type of thing get maximized around 25, 30 positions, but really 12 positions can get you most of the benefits of reducing standard deviation and, and max drawdowns and that type of thing, assuming that they're diversified in different industries. So owning more stocks isn't really going to help. And if you're going to own 50 stocks, you might as well just buy an ETF. Okay. So, you know, I think in the past we've disagreed on the benefit and value of maximizing your sharp ratio, or at least having that as a goal. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think we're closer to agreement now? I mean, my general philosophy is not that um, the ideas behind it are wrong, that, you know, if you can get high because re- sharp ratio is basically your returns divided by your volatility, right? Um, mm-hmm. To simplify it. Um, and so if you can get higher returns with lower volatility, um, that seems useful. Um, and so it's not that that's a bad thing, but I think for me, the, um, mathematical methodology around it hasn't been a value. Um, have you come closer to that viewpoint over time, um, with these changes? Yeah, I think with a stock portfolio, a portfolio where you're buying individual stocks and you're making judgments about individual stocks, the sharp ratio shouldn't be that, shouldn't be the overriding factor. It's different if you're trying to operate a quant portfolio. I'd say with a quant portfolio, you do want to maximize the sharp ratio and you do want to make sure that you hold enough positions. I'm moving away from that and I don't really want to hold that kind of portfolio anymore. I think that basically around 12 positions is enough where you can get your standard deviation and max drawdowns down. You can have a sufficient level of diversification. And it's also enough for me to follow. I found it really hard to follow 30 companies, um, to try to look for new ideas, monitor the companies I held. It was a lot of work and it was really not very productive considering that my returns could probably be replicated if I simply own like a quant value ETF. Well, I think that's that's the, the source of wisdom, right? Where it's like, okay, am I doing this activity because it actually is improving my potential returns or my, or is it really just a hobby? You know, am I, am I doing this because it's fun? Because that's fine if you're just going to match stuff, but if you're going to spend hundreds of hours doing something like this, um, you need to get some value out of it. Right. So, um, I think when you talk about increasing quality or trying to move away from trading and more into how you're defining investing, the themes I'm hearing from you are along the lines that, well, if you need to understand the business and that requires time. And so if you're going to put in time, then you need, you're going to end up with less positions because you have to put more time into each one. Is that right? That's right. And you want to be able to keep up with those companies. You want to be able to properly analyze those companies. You want to continue to be on the lookout for, um, new ideas, um, and doing that in a 30 stock portfolio, it, it might be possible for a professional with a staff of analysts, but for kind of the hobbyist investor, which is what I am, like I have a full-time job. I, uh, have other activities outside of investing. Uh, it's, it probably makes more sense to stick to companies that I can really know intimately 
where I can understand their strengths and weaknesses rather than try to arbitrarily fill up a portfolio with 30 positions. Yeah. Do you mind if we talk about an example of, you know, one of the positions that you you've kind of switched into as like, you know, cause we, we, we've talked in the past in one of the previous podcasts about, you know, we use, we've, you and I have both owned a company like GameStop bad business, all that sort of thing, you know, trying to do the deep value thing. But would you mind talking about one of your positions that you've published on the blog um, today to, to kind of talk about maybe the differences between those two types of things? Sure. Um, yeah, we could talk about any position. Probably a good example would be one I just bought, General Dynamics. Yeah, that's a defense company, right? Right. So they are a company... They've been around for 120 years. They are one of the main defense contractors for the United States government. Um, they operate a few different divisions. Um, a key one is they operate, they create, they basically manufacture vehicles like tanks and personnel carriers. Um, they also manufacture um, submarines. They recently got a contract to build the Columbia class nuclear submarine. Um, they also operate kind of cybersecurity for the Pentagon, that type of thing. And thinking about that kind of business, you step back, you think about it. Um, they earn high returns on invested capital. Why do they earn high returns on invested capital? Well, they're part of an oligopoly. There are only so many companies that you can order um, tanks and nuclear submarines from. It's not something where some startup can start tomorrow and start competing there. Um, if the U.S. government wants this equipment, they kind of have to deal with these companies. They have to deal with um, the Lockheeds, if they're talking about something aerospace related, and they have to deal with general dynamics. And uh, the other one would be Huntington Ingalls Industries, which mainly is focused on uh, the naval aspect of U.S. defense. So it makes sense that they're going to maintain their moat. It makes sense that they're going to be the primary supplier for tanks, and nuclear subs for the U.S. government for the future. Um, it also makes sense that the U.S. government will probably continue to expand spending. They have for 30, 40 years um, without, without stop. Um, you also see some secular growth prospects there. So the Chinese Navy is expanding right now. Um, I think they've gone from their Navy has increased to something like 330 ships in the last 10 years or so um, as they've been ramping up their naval capacity. We're going to have to compete with that, whether we want to or not, and we're probably going to have to build more ships. Um, we're dealing for the first time in U.S. Since the, end of the, since the end of the Cold War, we're dealing with growing international threats. The Russians are expanding their Navy. The Chinese are expanding their Navy. Um, the world isn't becoming a more peaceful place. So it seems to me like it's a pretty good bet for the long term. General Dynamics is the kind of company where if I were forced to hold it for 10 years, I wouldn't be too concerned. I, I'm, I'm comfortable that that company will maintain its competitive position. Um, and at the same time, I think I bought it at a pretty good price. I bought it around a P of 12, um, which is in kind of the lower end of its of its trading range. It's definitely much cheaper than the market. And it's also better than the market. It has um, the return. The returns on invested capital are somewhere around eighteen percent right now, and they've been able to maintain that for well over twenty years. Um, and I think they'll be able to continue that in the future. And and I think that's the kind of business 
I would like to own going forward as opposed to the kind of thing that's in secular decline where I'm trying to flip it for a quick profit. Well, I think General Dynamics is a really interesting example because you bought this company, or at least in your, you know, you talked about like 12, 13 times earnings. I think you're on mute. Oh. Oh, yes. Thank you. Um, So, yeah, for anyone listening, I'm muting myself because I've had to sneeze a lot today. Um, So, yeah, I think General Dynamics is an interesting example here because you have a price to earnings ratio in the 12 to 13 range, um, which is pretty cheap for high quality businesses. We think, you know, nowadays of a high, let's say a high quality business, a lot of people think of is like Facebook, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Trading at 30 plus times earnings. I can't remember what what it is at the moment. Um, But basically people are like, oh, well, you've got to pay up for a high quality business, but you can find General Dynamics 12, 13. And yet the interesting piece is, is the return on equity for General Dynamics is 27.5%. And I just pulled up Facebook's return on equity, and their return on equity is twenty three percent. So you're buying, you know, at least if you use return on equity as a description of high quality, a higher quality business than Facebook at half the price, a third of the price. Um, so and these and, and like you said, they, they don't face a lot of competition. This isn't this isn't GameStop going out of business with due to Amazon. This is, you know, one of three or four. Um, defense contractors. So I think it's it's a good example of how investors, if they want to find high quality positions, they can. Um, and I think that's the piece that potentially um, people overlook. So yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, I think everybody in this market says that oh, you have to pay up for quality. Um, and I think a big part thing that they ignore about that is that a lot of these high quality companies, you can still lose money in them if they if the multiples contract. Um, there are plenty of examples of that. Um, you could look at the Nifty Fifty in the early 1970s. They were all extremely high quality companies. You know, companies like American Express, Coca Cola, um, where their multiples contracted and you lost money if you held them for 10 years. Um, over the long run, you got bailed out from that because if you hold a wonderful business for long enough, you eventually do get bailed out. But no one's actually going to hold a business for 20, 30 years. They probably sold after five or 10 years of terrible performance. Um, same is true in the early 2000s. If you overpaid for a business like Microsoft, I think Microsoft was at about a 40 PE around the end of 2000. Um, and then it slowly contracted that multiple down to 10. Uh, during that time frame, during the next decade, it continued to grow revenues, it continued to grow earnings, it continued to be a wonderful company, but the stock still underperformed because it was bought at too high of a price. So I, I think margin of safety is still extremely important, but um, I also think that the quality of, of the business is very important. And I do think it's possible to buy high quality businesses at good prices. Um, and that's kind of contrary to what you hear in the market. But if you look back at market history, if you look back at a lot of the history of a lot of these wonderful companies, you'll find that there are plenty of opportunities where you can buy them with a margin of safety. Yeah. I mean, I recently published an episode, um, episode 95 on how to build conviction in a stock idea, talking about that, that, that you can get margin of safety, not just from the price, but also the quality. And that as you increase the quality of these businesses, you might improve your margin of safety. But like you, you mentioned Microsoft, I mean, it being like a 40 PE in the 2000, well, it's up to 37 now. 
So <laughs> yeah. So I mean, but it's it's a market darling. You know, they're like, oh man, the returns are amazing. It's high quality. It's like, well, it's been high quality <laughs> since two thousand. No, nothing's changed. Yeah, and it's it's hilarious because you go back to twenty twelve, and it was a pretty similar business. They they did move into the cloud and some other things, but basically, it had in twenty twelve when it had a P of ten. Um, it had the high returns in equity. It had the growth. It had everything that it has today. It was the same business, but because the P was ten, everybody said, "Oh, they're old news. They're they're getting uh, competed away. It's it's not a good company anymore." Uh, but what they were really reacting to was just the price action. They weren't really reacting to what was actually going on in the business. Um, and today, it's the same thing. They're reacting more to the price action than they are to the actual quality of the business. It's pretty much the same company it was in 2012, uh, but the PE is a lot higher. So I think you know Microsoft is a good example that brings up the idea of, so you've made these changes in your portfolio and your plan. So you're moving from higher diversification, 20 to 30 stocks down to about 10 to 12 stocks. You're going from lower quality companies to higher quality companies. Um, what we haven't talked about really is turnover. So you've mentioned this idea is like, well, high quality companies might have good returns over 20, 30 years, but no one holds that long. So mm -hmm. your holding period was very short. How mm -hmm. do you expect your holding period to change? I mean, you've mentioned you're okay holding these companies for 10 years. But do you think you will? Do you think you're going to, would you still turn them over if General Dynamics, you know, doubled from a 12 PE to a 24 PE? Um, what do you think you're going to do in terms of turnover in combination with your, your concentrated portfolio? Well, the nice thing about these, about this type of firm is that you're correct. Eventually, you can pay a high price, and eventually the quality of the business can bail you out in the long run. Um, I do plan on holding these for longer periods of time. I'm not going to try to flip them after a year or two. I would like to hold for the long run. The ideal situation for a company with general dynamics is that the multiple doesn't appreciate, is that the business is that I can achieve my returns through the growth in the business and the returns on invested capital, dividends, buybacks, that type of thing rather than um, multiple appreciation, which is what I was mainly interested in in the past. Um, I When would I sell General Dynamics? I mean, I think it has to be a lot more qual qualitative. Um, if somehow the competitive dynamics of General Dynamics changed, I'd have to sell it if, if it lost its moat or if, um, if something along those lines happened. Um, in terms of the price, would I sell it if the price got up, if the PE got up to 20? Um, no, I, I don't think I would. I don't think I'd have to. Um, that's not an absurd price for general dynamics. It's a fair price. Um, if the PE got up to 30 or 40, um, you know, or the EV EBIT multiple got that high or that type of thing, yeah, then I'd have to think about selling it. Like, it's more about, is the price absurd? at this point, like, is, is it absurdly expensive? That would probably be the reason I'd sell for price. Um, and then I'd also sell if kind of the competitive dynamics change for the company. Well, I, I like that idea of is the price absurd? Because what I've found with my own investing is a lot of my mistakes have come when I've sold. I've almost mm -hmm. never bought a company below or above a 20 PE. I was talking to someone recently about this. And um, they were like, what, really? It's like, no, but what I have done is I've also sold companies below a 20 PE 
because I'm like, oh, well, now it's an 18 PE and I can buy these six PE stocks. Um, but if you're in high quality businesses, does that really make sense? I, I don't know. You know, but I think the other thing that you hear a lot is these buy and hold investors will say, never sell. Never, you know, there's some businesses are never sell. And I don't think that's the best stance either. I mean, you talk about, okay, well, if it's a 40 PE, that's probably too high. So I think, you know, where do you stand on that? Because I'm against, I'm against that idea of never sell because I think everyone should have some price where you're like, man, you, you know, and I like to throw out like, would you sell it at 100 PE? Not that I think that's where you need to get, but like at some point these things are ridiculous, right? Yeah, I totally agree. Um, and you see that in the market today. You see a lot of prices that are ridiculous. Um, if you want to go back and look at Warren Buffett's history, I mean, a, probably, a great example of a company that got too expensive was Coke in the late 90s. Coke I got up to about a 40 PE in, in the late 90s. And that was clearly overvalued. Coke had a loss 12 years after that. Um, Warren Buffett couldn't sell for a lot of reasons. There was probably tax considerations. His reputation is tied up in the company of Coke. Um, he still had a wonderful cost basis. And he was still confident that Coke was a wonderful company. And it still is a wonderful company. Um, and he did okay by holding it over the long run. But for someone like me where I don't have those kind of problems, I don't have those considerations, I would have probably sold in 1998. Um, and I think it does make sense to sell even a great company if it gets too expensive. Um, at the end of the day, I think margin of safety still matters. I think price still matters. Um, and the main difference is with these better companies is it, it matters a lot less than it does with kind of a deep value company, but it still matters. Um, I mean, the main difference is if you if you own like a GameStop and you buy that at half of tangible book, well, you know over the long run it's in secular decline. So as soon as it pops back up the book, you have to sell it. Um, for a company like General Dynamics, you don't have to worry about that as much. You don't have to have your trigger fingers as itchy to uh, to sell it as soon as it pops. Um, but at the same time, you still kind of have to consider the price and you still have to consider, well, does this make sense? And I don't think you need to sell it at a fair price, but I do think you need to sell it if the market gets crazy and the market uh, gets euphoric about the stock. So you made me think of a, a question here about, you mentioned GameStop um, or just let's call it, you know, junk businesses in general. You know, if it gets back to book value, you have to sell it. The part that I've been thinking about recently is with these kind of junk businesses or poor businesses, you can look at price, you know, value investing. This one of the ideas is you buy below price to book and you sell at book. What I've been thinking about recently is like, who is that fool that you're selling it to that's buying it at book value? Because if it's well known as a bad business, what's the guarantee that it would ever should trade at book value? You know, I mean, have you thought about that? Like, is there, like, what is the impetus for why someone would, it's it's easy to make the argument that you should buy a company below book, but why would someone then come and buy it from you at book if they know, like, if your strategy is to sell it at book? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that makes sense. You are counting on a greater fool. You're counting on someone to come along and, and not see that this business is in a long-term decline. You know, Warren Buffett probably gave a good analogy of it when he talked about cigar butts. And cigar butt investing works. You can make a lot of money in cigar butts. I don't want to deride it as, as an investing concept. 
But yeah, basically what you're doing is you're buying something that's depressed. You hope that something comes along that temporarily lifts the price. It could be some temporary bout of good news and you take your free cigar puff. You do that over and over again, you can make money over the long run. It's a viable investment strategy. But you're right, it is more of a trading strategy. It's more of you're waiting for a greater fool to come along. Um, And that's just not the way I want to invest anymore. That's just not the way I want to think about um, owning companies anymore. I want to own businesses worth holding for the long run. So what I want to find out now is you've made a, a, a movement from you know, 30 stock portfolio to a 12 stock portfolio, increasing your quality. Um, we talked about turnover, but what I want to understand is, you know, I, I think you understand that my portfolio is a five stock portfolio. So mm-hmm. how, how do I convince you to get down? Not that I would ever would, but you know, do you think you'd ever move further um, <laughs> to, you know, to the dark side of, of the super concentrated five stock portfolio people? I mean, like what's the, is it, you know, what is it that, that made you choose 12 versus 15 versus five versus the Charlie Munger. I think his, his stocks was no one ever needs to own more than three. So you you know what I mean? So you've made a movement in this direction. Is this a trend or is this a, a one-time thing? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I mean, I'm, I'm evolving. I'm changing. Um, I think everybody is evolving and changing. I'm not saying that, uh, I won't get there someday. I think that, the volatility of that type of portfolio would be tough for me. I, I would have trouble. Um, I would have trouble holding during an, during a period of extreme volatility. Um, at the same time, I, I see that if you own, for instance, if you were a private businessman and you owned five businesses, you owned a, uh, you know, a diner in town, you own, most people would say, oh, that's a diversified businessman. He owns five different businesses doing five different things, if you looked at it from that perspective. But um, in the public markets, that's going to generate a lot of volatility. Um, I still kind of have one foot in the quant world and one foot in the qualitative world. The research does show that 12 positions ought to get me down to as much reduction and standard deviation of returns as I can get. Um, so I, I think I'm comfortable doing that. Maybe as I evolve and, and get better at analyzing businesses and have more confidence in my ability to analyze businesses, maybe then I would go more towards concentration. Uh, but for now, I guess I guess baby steps. I'll <laughs> I'll start with twelve and then we'll see how that goes. No, I'm not I'm not trying to con- you know <laughs> convince you to change. That was the, that's why I changed the wording. But it was more just like you know I think about um, I was where you are a few years ago in terms of, I was like, okay, 10 to 12, 10 to 15, that, that's what makes sense to me. You know, I'm a concentrated investor now. And then I've made that change. And for me, you know, I went through these lessons over the last six months and I moved down from eight positions to five or something, you know, um, over this six month period. And I think it was the same thing. I was like, man, those three positions at the end, those just are not as high quality. And, you know, do I really want to own those three you know, going into this recession, uh, you know, and so I sold them and switched the money into my higher quality stuff. Um, so I, I, no, I just, I think it's something interesting to think about that when you make these changes to understand the drivers behind them. So then, you know, when you need to make more changes. And so I think the, uh, the last area I want to touch on is you're interested in quality investing, but from what I've seen on the ones you've written up since you've made this change is they're all very big companies. 
So the other end of the dark side that I like to run with is um, either dark stocks, overlook stocks, microcap stocks, um, basically the smaller end of the market. Um, now, my theory is, is that you can find high quality, cheap prices in the smaller end of the market, and you can probably get better prices. But I'm interested to hear your thoughts on large cap versus, say, micro cap um, and why at least you're currently looking in. Or it seems like you're looking in large cap. So I don't know if that's true or not, but I wonder if you could speak to that idea. Um, I think you're more likely to find a bigger margin of safety in a micro cap stock. I, I do agree with that. And you're definitely more likely to find it among dark stocks, that type of thing. Um, lately, as I've, I've gotten more into looking for these moats, looking for these companies with these just overwhelming competitive advantages, that kind of inevitably leads me towards larger cap stocks. Now, I'm not going to say that there can't be a moat in a microcap stock. I absolutely think microcaps can have moats. Um, it's just the way that I've been thinking about things and the kind of businesses I've been drawn towards lately tend to be larger cap companies. Um, with that said, I mean, in the future, I'm open to investing in microcaps and dark stocks and that type of thing. If I can find a microcap or dark stock where I think it has a moat, I think it has an incredible, durable, competitive advantage. I would be comfortable holding it if the market were closed for 10 years. Sure, I'd buy it. Um, and I think you're more likely to find bigger margin of safety in, in that universe. Um, it's just that I, as I've been thinking about moats and this type of thing, it's led me more towards the larger cap direction. And I also realized that within the by doing that, it's also reducing my returns. Um, I'll, I could probably get much higher returns if I focused on microcaps. Um, by focusing on this universe, it's definitely lowering my returns, but it's also increasing my comfort with with the businesses that I'm holding. So, oh, that's a that's a key topic because I think I, I answered a question um, in, in a private message on Twitter the other day, and they basically said, "So, do you think are you increasing your returns with your strategy?" And my answer was like, "No." Absolutely not. And they were like, what? And it was because they were talking about people who run a more diversified, but like true deep value portfolio, like extreme quantitative deep value. You know, you're trying to find price to books of like 0.2. And -hmm. I was like, but I could never hold it, which I think is this whole theme that we're talking about today, right? Is like, well, it doesn't matter what the expected return of your portfolio is if you can't actually execute it. Um, so I think that's a good area to start wrapping up. But what I wanted to offer you was just, you know, what is the, you know, either a question that I for, shouldn't or that should, I should have asked you or, you know, how would you kind of, you know, wrap up your thoughts and, you know, the, the key lessons you think you've learned that other investors should take away um, from your, let's say, learning from your mistakes over the last um, year? Oh, well, anyone who wants to read my blog can read a lot of bad investing, can read a lot of bad mistakes. <laughs> um, and you can probably learn some lessons on my dime, um, things that I learned through experience. You could probably just learn through osmosis by reading what I wrote about and how that how some of those decisions worked out. Um, so there's there's that. You could you could just read read through that blog and see some of the terrible choices I made. Um, another, I'd say another key lesson would be a main thing that I've taken away is that you have to figure out yourself. You have to figure out what do you believe in? 
Um, what's your true risk tolerance? And you should stick to that. You shouldn't just do something just because um, you ran a back test and saw that it has great returns. You shouldn't do something because someone really smart is telling you to do it. You really have to find your own style. You have to figure out what works for you. Um, for me, I am. I realize that with a deeper value approach, I could probably earn higher returns over the very long run. Uh, but the problem that I ran into is I found it really hard to hold those kind of businesses when faced with a situation like March. So I've, I'm changing my portfolio to hopefully change my behavior in the future to make my behavior where when something like that happens again, and it inevitably will, I want to own the businesses where I can look at my portfolio and I can go through each company, company by company and say, yes, this company will survive this recession. This company will survive this turbulence in, in the economy. Um, but there's different people out there with different kinds of risk tolerances. You, there's people out there who might be comfortable holding um, a bad business when the economy is falling apart. They might have more conviction than I have. They might be able to stick to their guns. And I'd say that's the main thing you got to learn. You have to figure out who you are, um, what your true risk tolerance is, what your personality is, and develop an investing approach for that. There's not one true faith. There's not one style of investing that's going to work for everybody. Well, thank you. I think that's um, some great lessons for my listeners to take away. Uh, how about you wrap up by you know promoting yourself, where people you'd like people to get in touch with you, follow you, um, basically promote whatever you'd like to promote. Sure. Um, the best place to follow me is my blog. Um, it's just valuestockgeek.com. Um, it's, it's a live look at my portfolio. I've been tracking it since late 2016. Every trade is on there. Every mistake is on there. Every success is on there. Um, and I wanted to make it as transparent as possible. Um, so people could see mistakes and hopefully learn from them and to help me too. So I could go back and read it and then try to learn, uh, from my own mistakes. Um, you can also reach me on Twitter. I'm at value stock geek. And those are, those are the best places to, uh, read what I'm up to. Well, thank you for joining us in the podcast. I'll link to your blog, your Twitter account, and I'll also put in links for your previous two interviews on this show, episodes 49 and episode 62, for any listeners who want to listen to that as well. So thank you for coming on the show, and uh, maybe we'll do this again in the future. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. The DIY Investing Podcast is presented for general informational and entertainment purposes only. I have not considered your specific situation or risk profile, and I have not provided investment advice. The information presented on the DIY Investing Podcast should not be construed as investment advice. The views and opinions expressed on the DIY Investing Podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's host or sponsors. DIY Investing, its producers, sponsors, and host, Trey Henniger, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based upon information or viewpoints presented on the DIY Investing Podcast.